This podcast is sponsored by Rode Microphones, the choice of today's creative generation, and Small HD, real-time confidence for creatives. Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne here for the No Film School podcast, the week of January 27th, 2020. We're going to be doing a whole bunch of great podcasts out of Sundance this week. We have producers roundtables, we have cinematographers roundtables. This is the first of multiple staff roundtables. You guys know me, I'm Charles Hayne. I'm here with No Film School founder, Ryan Koo. Hey everyone. Editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Elliman. Hello. And writer, Oakley Anderson Moore. Hey folks. And uh, it's day one and a half of Sundance. We're going to be talking about the start of the festival. We're going to be talking about networking. We're going to be talking about new frontiers. We're going to be talking about how you should approach the festival when you're here. All of that this week on the No Film School podcast, part one of Sundance 2020. It's day one and a half at Sundance. This is the first full day of things but there was stuff last night bad hair premiered last night there were other things last night so it's really like one and a half but friday is also the day where it feels to me like most people show up i feel like they're they're still you feel like people are still filling in like the press line was really tiny this morning which was amusing this is my first year covering as press i went to sundance a couple years ago as as a fan but as press it is a much different experience yeah, last year I went at, on the alumni badge and thought maybe it would be more special than press, and it turned out that that, that is not the case. So this year I'm back to being press because I get into more things and I can see more movies. And I think with all of the uh, you know hype around Sundance and the, the conversation around acquisitions and, and the prognostication about what it means for the market in the year to come and all this kind of stuff, one really important thing to remember about Sundance is as a filmmaker and as a storyteller, one of the best things you can do is see movies and just try to see as many as you can because it, it is uh, inspiring to see movies that are outside the typical multiplex uh, you know release schedule and uh, yes yeah, so with that said I, I so far I've managed to see one movie <laughs> well I've only managed to see one movie so far as well but I feel like that's okay considering we're early on uh, there were yeah there were a few premieres last night and we did new frontiers this morning which I think was pretty cool. We can talk about that in a second, but maybe, Oakley, what have you seen so far? Well, I saw Crip Camp, which was an opening night film last night, although I saw it this early this morning because I didn't quite get in uh, to get my badge in time to get to last night's. Um, but it was really impressive. And I mean, like the one thing I'm seeing so far um, with films, I've seen a few others already, actually. I've probably seen the most films of everyone so far. So I've already seen a few documentaries and the... What I can say is like the documentary lineups this year are really strong, which we've mentioned in the past. You know, Sundance always has a lot of good documentaries. And this year, I think that's the case. And Crip Camp was really amazing. It's the story of um, a camp, a summer camp for disabled kids and adults um, in the 60s, kind of happening at the same time as Woodstock. And the people at that camp went on to become these huge advocates um, for people with disabilities. And they created... And they, they stormed the Capitol, they did sit-ins, they did protests, people with all kinds of disabilities of any sort, and eventually they accomplished the American Disabilities Act. And um, the film was executive produced by the Obamas, who I was, oh. by Barack and Michelle, who everyone was hoping would be at the screening, but... <laughs> Early this morning? <laughs> they, they weren't neither from one, I, they weren't the one I was at, and from people were telling me uh, they were not on the one 
the the last night. But so this was was this part of their because they have a deal with Netflix, right? It's a Netflix film. Gotcha. So this is this is the first of their. They have a production company. They're doing content with Netflix. This is the first of those. There are so many. I don't think it is because he released his list, which we put a post out on nofilmschool.com about uh, of movies from 2019. And he included something that was his, which a lot of people thought was funny because it was like, yeah, of course, no problem. <laughs> he included the movie that he produced. Okay, so he's been <laughs> – So he's produced some stuff that's not – this is not his first. That I'm pretty confident. But it does lead to an interesting thing we have been talking about because I also have seen a bunch of documentaries. But one thing that we've been c- talking about a lot just as a team is that Sundance's relationship is changing to the market. There was a point where festivals were about getting distribution and – you know, most of what was at a festival didn't have distribution, and it was about that process, and you would hear about these big buys and people spending $17 million and these deals happening in condos. I'm trying to think of the thing, you know, already has distribution on Netflix. Miss Americana, already a Netflix movie. Um, I have never seen so many titles with coming with Netflix already yeah. as I have this year. But even outside of Netflix, like A24 and, like, Netflix in specific has done really well at Sundance this year, but it seems like... Apple... Does Apple have anything this year? Maybe not. Last year, maybe. Yeah, yeah, but it just seems like the nature of the festival is different when it's not about acquisitions. It's just it's just a different beast. Yeah, it's. I mean, last year it was a twenty four's year for sure. Like every almost every movie I went to, it was like, oh, a twenty four produced this. Um, but I, I think yeah, the festival definitely changes. It becomes more about the discovery of uh, a new filmmaker or a new voice on the scene rather than it being about who's going to get the large acquisition and what movie's going to break out because obviously the entire distribution landscape has changed and with that you know then then uh, if Netflix is is financing things because they want every territory from the jump then obviously the whole market is going to change uh, so yeah I don't I don't know we'll see in our forthcoming podcasts about what kinds of acquisitions and deals happen but uh, thankfully right now it's about the films yeah and I wonder what that means for the films this year, for example, that don't have distribution, given that there are so many that do. Does that make distribution offers come to them more likely because there's distributors that are looking and there's less titles for them to get? Or is it just like, oh, how sad, everyone else has Netflix. And I, you know, like the the filmmaker that Emily um, is profiling that she just posted an article about, you know, do they have distribution? Like, I wonder what their story is. That article is live now. You can read it. Uh, so we're talking about uh, – it's a documentary about the villages in Florida, right? Uh, the Oppenheimer yes. documentary? Yes. The headline is about how this filmmaker cold emailed Darren Aronofsky and got him as a producer, which is lovely and instructive and gives us all hope. Uh, so check that out on nofilmschool.com. But I would imagine in terms of the acquisition market, one thing with Sundance always is it's about what happened last year to the movies that people paid big money for. And so it goes in cycles because if – some movies were bought and then were profitable at the box office later. Then next year, people tend to spend more. And if the opposite happened, they tend to spend less. But uh, I would imagine that if you have deep-pocketed companies who are producing from the jump instead of acquiring, that that means fewer bidders. It means less dollars to go around. So if you're trying to, to get the sort of bidding war that uh, you know, may sort of go away in terms of the, the big numbers – you know, not having those deep-pocketed companies participating would certainly – you'd expect the price to go down. I ran into a friend of mine who's a buyer, and I'm not going to name him or the company he works for, but he made a funny joke to me, which was that he said his company is going to buy things <coughs> that aren't very good, <laughs> that need to recoup their money desperately. 
So that's like there's like business models out there where it's like you're maybe you've got a producer who's put a lot into something and it's here and they're hoping to get something just to get it out there and start making some money back. And so there's all kinds of things like that's just that's not what I would think of when I think of Sundance acquisitions, you know, but there's all kinds of people here doing business on different kinds of movies for different kinds of markets. You know, it's not just the indie award. It's not just the market we think of when we think of Sundance movies. And that's a good point, that all kinds of people come here. Like, we've talked about what it is to be a filmmaker, to come here and network, or you want your movie here. But, uh, you know, Charles was telling us about getting a ride from, like, a Russian billionaire's <laughs> bodyguard. And, you know, we don't need to go any further into that in case, in case he's being, uh, you know, tracked on that. But, th- you know, there's, there's multiple Sundances in terms of um, both income levels, right? Yeah. You have people slapping around on shuttles and walking through snow and us. waiting in line yeah that's us and then you have people who are largely in you know black vip cars and getting dropped off at venues and uh it's sort of like uh you know the the income inequality in the country is also reflected at something like sundance but then from an industry standpoint as george is mentioning you know there's all sorts of people here who are looking to buy movies there are filmmakers looking to network there are press people like us looking to hopefully extol the virtues of some film and um, and then there are film goers and huge, huge, huge number of volunteers here who come around and make the festival go, but also get access to tickets. And uh, I think that was one thing that was interesting about you guys talking about how to do Sundance on a budget. In the last podcast episode, is Charles had a great observation that you can stay in Salt Lake City and then come in if you can find parking, and then that you're not you're not hit with the incredible housing prices because Park City is so small. But you can also volunteer. And then you get to see a lot of stuff, and that's one other thing to look at. If you want to come here and you're like, well, I don't want to go to Sundance because what's my purpose there? It's like, well, volunteering is a purpose. Yeah, and it's funny how often uh, people I talk to in the industry, sometimes directors, but also sometimes people in so many other jobs where the story of their career involved, well, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and so I volunteered at Sundance, and the first year they had me in this office, and it wasn't good, and then the second year I was in the press office, and I was like, oh, this is fun, and now 20 years later I'm a film publicist. And you're like, it is a way – it is also, you know, many people are trying to figure out how to what they want to do in the industry and volunteering at a festival can expose you in a very intense way to a variety of things within the industry. Um, and that's been great. And shout out to all the wonderful volunteers that we've interacted with today. We should pro- – oh. Yeah, I was going to say I, um, I was just talking to a young guy who's a film student, fan of No Film School, and he's the guy that you will show your badge to to get into the media co-op. So it's like you've got all kinds of – would-be or aspiring or current filmmakers volunteering, yeah. including other people as well. Like, for example, this year my mother is a Sundance volunteer. Which um, is awesome. Yeah, because she just loves films, and she's, you know, she, I always get her to do catering on my films, so she's been on lots of film sets. Yeah. So she's a big supporter of, like, really, really independent DIY. You know, one of the things we've talked about a little bit but is worth mentioning again is that there's so many movies here, you can't really see them all. But if you're interested in getting inspired by what people are doing or trying to do, like Ryan referenced, coming here means you're going to see stuff that maybe you won't see anywhere else or ever again. Or some people will Mm -hmm. never see. Some of the things that are here break out and they're available to people in general, but most of them aren't. So you do get an experience, even though this is like a very high level festival, so you do get an experience of seeing movies that do things a little differently, that are coming more from a personal POV or voice, like the movie I've seen already here was definitely unlike your standard movie going experience, even though it had some names in it, 
Um, and to me, that was interesting because it was like, yeah, with the Sundance film, you get an opportunity to, or the person making this film found an avenue at Sundance because they did something a little different, a little more. What film was this? Black Bear. I don't know if I wanted to talk about it yet because I'm going to talk to the filmmaker and stuff. But yeah, yeah. Well, well, you'll hear more about that on No Film School. You will hear from the filmmaker and we will cover it. But very interesting, unique film, not the kind you would see in a major theater certainly or on a street well maybe you will i don't know it's well just, I, I, it's different <laughs> yes and, and i think that's one of the most important things about sundance is if you are trying to make it in the film industry as a filmmaker the film industry at large is generally predicated on what has been successful in the past and by its very definition that is not doing something radical or new or innovative right the, the, the industry models your film's potential to find an audience, to make money, to pay its investors back, whatever it is based on something similar of a similar genre with a similar feel in the past, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas if you go to Sundance and you watch movies, you will see, you'll see some things like that that fit into boxes easily and you can see how it got financed and you can figure it out. But you also see movies that specifically got into Sundance because they are doing something different and they ignored, you know, the, 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 uh, collective wisdom or lack thereof of the industry <laughs> that is saying like we know what's going to work because mm -hmm. someone else said no i'm not going to do that i'm not going to play your game i'm going to go do this and like it seems like it didn't have a market and it seems like it wouldn't make any money but that those are the same reasons why it gets into the festival and so that tension is at the heart of the industry and you can see it at work i at think sundance. that if you're doing if you're looking for that stuff at sundance you just have to look past the the, the highlighted like the big name stuff with the names you've heard of like you have to look go see a movie that nothing about it makes sense to you you don't recognize and it still doesn't tell you much it's like i have no idea what this is going to be like right. that way you'll you'll see something different but that's what's nice about sundance is reasonably most of the things here are at least interesting and so if you're looking through the catalog and you're like, oh, well, that movie's going to be out in a month. That movie's going to be out in a month. That movie, I already know where it's coming. But, like, here are these four movies that, like, never heard of, don't know anybody. But, like, it made it to Sundance. This podcast is sponsored by Rode Microphones, the Australian pro audio powerhouse making incredible gear for podcasters, vloggers, filmmakers, and musicians. Rode is at the vanguard of innovation for audio solutions for podcasters, offering groundbreaking products like the Rodecaster Pro, the world's first fully integrated podcast production studio, and PodMic, the ultimate podcasting microphone. Find out more about how Rode can help you cut through the noise at rode.com slash podcasting. That's R-O-D-E dot com forward slash podcasting. Small HD, real-time confidence for creatives. Founded by a group of independent filmmakers, Small HD has been innovating the on-camera and production monitor industry for an entire decade. It started by creating the first ever HD monitor that could sit on top of a DSLR. Today, its products include the 703 Bolt that has an integrated wireless receiver and a daylight viewable screen. Small HD is in the business of providing real-time confidence for creatives. With an extremely wide range of field monitors, Small HD prides itself on durability and usability. Whether it's paired with a mirrorless camera during a wedding or used for a video village in Hollywood, Small HD is a monitor for every production. Powerful software tools, a unified user experience, and premium display quality help make Small HD monitors the industry standard. Stop wondering if you've nailed the shot. Start having more confidence at the camera with Small HD. On camera and production monitors starting at just $299. For more information about Small HD products, go to smallhd.com.
good time to start talking about New Frontiers. Because um, one of the other things that... I think like, the Frontier is singular. New Frontier? I believe it's New Frontier. It's new, the program yeah. is called New Frontier. I'm incapable of getting its <laughs> name right. Charles is desperate to change its name. <laughs> I want to keep calling it New Horizons as well, which we realize is work. probably... A rehab center? Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> You know, Ooh, uh, VR rehab. VR. Oh my god. AR VR rehab. That's yeah. something. Yeah. Um. So next new, year, filmmakers, new frontier. You will be a new frontier if you make a VR, AR, MR, XR rehab of New Horizon. Yeah. Called New Horizon. Um. So New Frontier, singular, is uh is another one of the things that really argue for going to festivals because VR is still something. Even if you have VR at home, VR is still something that is. Most of the interesting VR experiences are still at festivals. Tribeca has a great VR setup. New Horizon has a, I mean, New Frontier has a interesting VR setup. I can't get this right. Um, but the uh, George, Ryan, and I uh, went over and checked it out this morning. Um, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to open with this, and it's just me kvetching like an old man. I have, Sundance is doing it the best of anybody, but setting up a VR flow where it's like an organic process, I feel like every time I go to one of these things, Three quarters of my time is waiting in line or being told that I didn't get on the right line or whatever. Not in and a slot or a queue or a list. Or yeah. All this and like even – and Sundance does it better than anybody else. And yes. they have like these nice digital things and they're going to text you and they're ready for you and everything. But it's still – it's really hard, which is one of the big challenges of VR right now is like trying to create these immersive experiences that are – I honestly think if you walked into one of the, the New Frontier rooms – and you didn't understand what was going on necessarily, and you weren't in t- contact with anybody there, you might feel like you were at some weird... Well, you are, like, at an art installation, but it's unclear what the art is. Like, you yeah. re- there's food, and there's people milling around, and there's, like, things, but it's, like, where's... Because the rooms are kind of sectioned off, and there's a little sign, and you have no idea what's back there. And yeah. if you just walked in, you would just be like, what? where do I go? What do I do? What is this place? Yeah. Like, no one knows how to exhibit. Right. VR. VR has yeah. an exhibition problem. And <laughs> when you walk in, no matter what festival it is, like whatever you're going to do is going to be a bunch of people with a bunch of VR headsets. <laughs> and it's kind of like when we go to NAB and our mics don't work, right? It's a torture test technologically for the situation because they're all wireless. Some of them are VR. Some of them are like Magic Leap, uh, augmented reality. And they're all using the, the wireless, and they're all trying to motion track and do all these things, and they're in close proximity. So, of course, like, there are going to be technical problems left and right. And in some cases, it's 20 headsets in one room, you know, and, and with all that different was, but, but levels that was of the people. Of, the, of all the VR I've ever participated yeah. in, I love uh, – that might be my favorite VR. So let's talk about all kinds of limbo. That was, I think we all agreed, like a really unique and well-executed VR experience. A project in the National Theater in the UK. Yes. And what I was wondering afterwards, comparing to others, was that it's in a box. Do you think that helps to make it, like, somehow, it maybe, I don't understand all the tech, maybe you do more so, but I found that it was very easy to experience and take in beyond just the content itself. Like the technical experience of it was very easy for me to like embrace and be in. And it opened my mind up to, and I'm going to talk about this a lot more when we do our roundtable with New Frontier creators, but um, it really opened up my mind to the possibilities of what you could do with this. 
first let's set the table for people. So you walk into this room and there are 20 headsets there, VR headsets. There are sensors on the ceiling that detect where people are in the space. And if you put the headset on, you can, of course, no longer see anything except in the VR world. But you have boundaries. You can tell where you are in the room. And there are also markers that show where other people are. So uh, it's, it's like a communal VR experience which is trying to replicate somewhat of the communal experience of watching a movie where you have 20 people who know where the other people are and you're seeing something, but you're seeing it from slightly different perspectives. And I guess that's probably why you responded to it, Charles, so much because it wasn't just you in one room by yourself watching something. But I actually think, interestingly, um, All Kinds of Limbo was something I could have enjoyed alone. The thing I think worked, first off, it is a reminder... There's a very charismatic lead performer, and there's a reminder that charisma is still one of the things that we appreciate in a in a you know we we go to these things to connect with human beings and like all kinds of limbo was about this actress and her relating to musical history and uh, her own sense of um, yeah and but she had a lot of charisma yeah. and it was like oh yeah that's one of the things we like about media but I also really liked about it is that um, a lot of VR experiences seem to have this idea of saying, oh my God, VR is this brand new thing, so we can invent an, an entire aesthetic from scratch. And they always invent this aesthetic that feels like it's like 1985, and there's like blocks everywhere, <laughs> and there's like big architectural shapes, and it's all the same weird aesthetic, and it all feels like, it feels like a community parody of the aesthetic. Whereas All Kinds of Limbo, because it was about her identity and trying to connect with the past, explored these, like, there's a 1970s sequence, there's a big cabaret sequence, there's a Calypso sequence, and it's exploring these visual aesthetics in a, in a VR space, and it's trying to use, you know, that 70s dance sequence in the desert, like, yeah. was yeah. magical, and it was, but it was grounded in an exploration of how to take this aesthetic and expand it into VR, and I was like, oh, this is super cool, but I think I could have enjoyed it alone in a living room. I liked the Calypso one because I thought, oh, they could build a little stage around me. They could build yeah. a room around me, and yeah. I could walk, and I could look and see, like, there are people doing something over here or people doing something, and it just became, like, up. That's where I got to this point of thinking, there's a lot that can be done with this. I've had a lot of VR air experiences where I thought, I don't know, it feels kind of limited to me. This yeah. was one of the ones where I thought, this feels like there could really be a lot to be done. Yeah. One of the cool things, too, about seeing the markers of where the other people were yeah. is when a particularly funky beat dropped <laughs> and people were dancing, you see those markers start to sway, and you're like, oh, yeah. someone over there is really getting yeah. down. No, that, that marker is really swaying. I thought it was funny when there was a marker like right next to her, and at one point it was me because she moved around, but I was like, oh, somebody's like right. And the markers are just little lines. It was almost like you saw a little person's essence or soul. Like, yeah. just a little white, like... I actually wish they'd been more aesthetically interesting. Yeah, me too. <laughs> like, the little white line was one thing, but I was like, couldn't it have been a shape or a mist or a whatever and, like, a wider rainbow color? Like, there were the white lines, but it was nice to see other people in the space moving together. Another funny thing was that the line of unused headsets were just sitting there. <laughs> yeah. They were, yeah. like, they were unused, not swaying. unused souls. Like, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think one of the interesting challenges is that VR is, as a distribution medium, if it become if it increasingly becomes a viable platform, if more people at home have VR headsets, it's something you're going to experience solo, maybe with another person on the couch. Yeah. But so a lot of them are having to adapt those experiences to these communal environments, which isn't necessarily 
native. And I, I mean, I was thinking about one of the new frontier things I went to years ago where you were wearing a full body suit and you were in a VR space and there was another participant and there was an avatar on top of them and you could interact. And it's like, that's just, you can't do that at home. And Charles, you brought up something interesting too, which was like the best VR experience I ever had was... Hero. So a couple years ago at Tribeca, I experienced Hero, which if you guys don't know Hero VR, you're in Syria, you're standing in a town square, a bomb goes off and you have to climb through a building to rescue a kid. However... It's a 2,000 square foot space that's like pre-built for you with like a foam layout for you to crawl through to rescue the kid. There's two people who like walk you through the space and walk you in, walk you out. One person gets to do it a half an hour. So literally until today, because I talk about Hero whenever VR comes up, I've never run into anyone else who did it. Today I was talking about Hero at New Frontier and two other people are like, I've done Hero because I was at New Frontier and it was people who were very into that. But like it doesn't scale. It's super hard to replicate. Like yeah. it's it's the kind of thing where like, you know, Compared to the number of people who've watched even a not very successful movie, mm-hmm. like, it's such a niche thing. But that's what I really loved of All in My Limbo. It's like, you know, because there are a lot of headsets out now, especially for PS4, right? Like, that's the most popular headset, I believe. Uh, I don't know my current stats. Between that and Oculus, there are a lot of headsets, but it's mostly for gaming. But I felt like All in My Limbo was a real, like, storytelling, narrative, like, example of interesting things you can do in VR that are really engaging. I also thought, I don't know if anybody else got to do Haifa, but Haifa, you were a mushroom, and I, it was amazing, and like, for a while, I was a mushroom, (laughs) and it was like, really like, beautiful and evocative, and I was like, oh, I'm a mushroom. Someone needs to take mushrooms mm-hmm. and do. Yeah. I was trying to work that angle. Yeah, yeah. Charles went to Sundance and he was a mushroom. In the s- in the second New Frontier, which I got to too late to do anything, there was one called the trip, which was you w- went on a DMT trip, but I did not get to do that one. I did a. Well, you can do that one later. Yeah, I did a Disney. There's one. At, <laughs> there's one at Disney that's like the hero thing you're describing. Very expensive, Star Wars themed. Oh yeah, I've done and, that one. Yeah, yeah, and you're like fighting, and you got a backpack and a blaster, and you're doing all this stuff. And, and then hot stuff coming at you, and it's like. Yeah. But yeah, it's not. Scalable. It's done by the it's void, theme, right? Yeah, it's a theme ride. It's yeah. like you know, it's an experience, but it's not. It's not going to happen in your living room. This year at New Frontier, did they have it um, where in years past the artists are right there after yes. you get yeah. out? See, I always find that a bit awkward. I hate it. <laughs> like, so what do you think? And you're like, oh. You were great. It was great. It, was great. it actually was really buggy. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I saw two I things. I, I hated so much at New Frontier, and I was so glad oh the artist wasn't there when I walked outside because I, I was like, I don't know how to honestly tell you that I hated every minute of that, and I felt trapped in it. The best thing to do is just smile and leave. I, I had one that was buggy, and it wasn't anyone's fault, I don't think, but it just felt bad from the experience of the people working there and doing it in the artists because it was like, yeah, I couldn't really experience it. Like, I had to keep resetting, and like, you know, it's tricky. One, one, we'll talk about one more, and then we'll move back to filmmaking since that's what this uh, website is about. Um, the one that I thought was really interesting, too, it was not VR. It was AR, augmented reality, using Magic Leap headsets, which are, you know, uh, transparent uh, lenses in front of your eyes, but then it projects things on that, on top of reality. And George and I went in and we did this one called Breathe. And the context makes a big difference because at Sundance, one of the things that Sundance is famous for is everybody gets sick <laughs> because it's, uh, you know, flu dance, germ dance, whatever it is, everyone's here, they're drinking, it's late, it's cold, it, you know, it's uh, people are glad handing and shaking hands and sneezing and. You know, you, you, you sit next to people in the theater and they sneeze and there's hot tubs. So people get sick. George and I walk into this simulation 
of your breath. And it comes in a virtual 3D space of particles coming out of you and the other participants. And so you can just, you can just watch yourself, uh, you know, be contagious and the other people around you be contagious and the, the track of their particles as they come towards you. So at flu dance in particular, I think breathe feels a little bit different, but it was really cool uh, yeah, to to just, see the, the visualization fun, of the it. The funny thing to me about that, because I didn't get that take from you at the time, was that the interesting thing about that experience to me was that I would look across this like breath scape that we were creating, and I would see Ryan like batting at it in his CR, <laughs> in his VR stuff. You'd be like trying to knock it around or move it, and I was like, I was trying not to get sick. Yeah, Ryan was trying not to get sick. Apparently, because <laughs> if if anyone listened last year, I showed up with a fever of 104, and later turned out. To be bronchitis and pneumonia. Uh, so this year, so far, so good. Uh, sh- shall we get back to the films? So Oakley, I know you've seen a little more than we have. Uh, is there anything that really stuck out to you so far, or what is what are the trends you've seen in the short time you've been here? Um, I'm having a really great year. So I've seen Crip Camp. It was amazing. Right. Um, and we're going to do an interview with the filmmakers and the editors. Going to be on our roundtable, so you'll hear more about that film. Um, a Thousand Cuts, which follows the rise of uh, Philippine President Duterte is really powerful and just an incredible inside view from filmmaker Ramona Diaz is really incredible. Um, I also have seen two narratives, um, La Leyenda Negra, which is a black and white film. Um, you got to tell me more about that offline because we will also be talking to one of the producers of that film on our ah, table. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Um, the Mountains Are a Dream That Called to Me is great. Um, all kinds of films that, um, you know, I've seen good documentaries that are traditional and non-traditional doing both really well um and yeah i mean that's what i've seen so far and i've just been really impressed ryan went to a party do you have any party (laughs) report well so all of us got in so we got in late and all of us were like going to bed and ryan's like no one wants to go with me to an open-air party well so justin (laughs) justin simeon who uh directed dear white people is is back with a film called bad hair and it was a day one film. It played yesterday. None of us were here in time to see it. Um, but I did go to the premiere party. And, you know, that's that's one of the things that Sundance is here for. It's networking. And even if you are not a uh, 100% extrovert, like go up and introduce yourself to people at random, if you come here with somebody, you know, it, the two of you can kind of divide and conquer. And if you see somebody you recognize, then all of a sudden the person you know is talking to somebody you don't know and you can get the intro that way. Um, so it's a lot of people introducing each other and saying, oh, this is so-and-so, they're a director, or they made this. And you go, oh, actually, I, I know your film, and I've been wanting to meet you, and like, give me your number. And, but I would recommend putting it in your phone right then and there, and then composing a text or an email that says, Ryan Koo, we met here, talked about this, or whatever, and sending it. Because by the end of the festival, you are not going to remember who these people are, or what that card was, or what the context was, or what you wanted to meet them about. So anyway, that's why I went to the party. It's nice that there are free drinks at parties, of course, and you can actually do Sundance on a budget if you take advantage of the free food that's out there. Um, but in, you know, the reason I went was not to, you know, I'm gonna go crazy. It's <laughs> night. It's night one. Let me see if I can get sick again at the beginning of the festival. Yeah, Ryan's and got good networking tips, and yeah, yeah the was, parties are for meeting yeah. people and you know learning. I went to parties last year and saw people that I was like, oh. It's an old friend. I'll interview on you, you on the podcast because you got a film here. Like you never know what's gonna happen. So yeah, go to those things. And it's weird though because a lot of times you go to a, a party for a film, but you're gonna see the film like two days later. So like, what do you, 
You know, <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you say to people? Congratulations. <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah. like, uh, also, I just got an invite for the party for a film on Saturday night, and the film has zero screenings before Sunday. Its premiere is Sunday. But their party is Saturday. No pressure on you. I know. I was like, just yeah. don't forget and say, oh, I love yes, it. You yeah. Please do say. <laughs> the movie was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we will be back, right? With more. We are With doing more. multiple staff or writer or whatever you want to call us team. We're doing multiple no film school team roundtables. We're doing a whole bunch of other roundtables. We have a short film roundtable coming up, a cinematographer's roundtable, producers. We have a new Frontier Horizon roundtable coming. <laughs> We're going to have an editor's roundtable. Oh, yeah. So we've got roundtables coming. So stay tuned to this spot to get a whole lot more uh, Sundance coverage. Also, a whole bunch of stuff is going down on the website at nofilmschool.com. Check it all out, No Film School 2020. Yeah, if you want to know about the cameras and lenses being used, the things people edited on, the, pro- the software that was used this year in post-production, we have all that information. We have some great infographics up about it. We also have already interviews with filmmakers up on the site. So definitely check it out. See you guys soon. Or hear you guys soon. Yeah, check you later. This podcast was recorded using Rode microphones and technology.